You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have a great guest. I have uh, Ryan from VivTech, and we're going to talk about lighting, UV lighting in particular. I know that in the frog world, the amphibian world, it's kind of um, kind of a controversial topic. It's an interesting topic that um, many different people have opinions on and whatnot. And I want to get Ryan's opinion on UV lighting kind of in general because there's been a lot of changes and advancements to technology, in the, especially in the past few years. So we're going to talk about that in terms of how it might apply to frogs and other amphibians. But before we get into that, of course, the usual stuff. Thanks, everyone, for the nice five-star reviews. Thanks to all the patrons on Patreon. I have a couple of different tiers. Most popular tier is the $5 tier. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And I've also got links in the link tree to the merch stop. I've, I've also got um, t-shirts. I've got stickers. I've got all sorts of cool stuff. Summer's just around the corner. If you want to get some cool t-shirts, that's the place to get them. And I'm also an affiliate now with In-Situ Ecosystems. So if you'd like to get a 10% discount just by being a listener, make a purchase through the link in the link tree and you'll get 10% off your purchase. And a small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. And check out the last link in the link tree. There's also a link there to support Panamanian frog conservation. It's an important issue. And part of being in this hobby, being in this world, I think is giving something back. So if you'd like to make a donation, click that link as well. And that's pretty much it. So, Ryan, how are you doing tonight? Thanks for taking some time to talk to me. What's going on? Doing good, man. Doing really good. No, absolutely. I love it. I love talking amphibians and reptiles and lighting and any any of that stuff. So, appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And just I'm um, for everybody out there, Ryan actually had a, a podcast not too long ago. Um, I, w- I caught a couple episodes of that, and I, I really enjoyed it. I, I know you've still got it up there. You want to just real quick, if anybody else wants to check that out, too. What, what was the name of your podcast? Yeah, no, again? definitely. It was called uh, Reptile Room Confessions Podcast. Um, I, me and my wife, Erica, and our friends, Bill and Teresa Bradley, did that and had a blast with it. But after we launched uh, our company, we kind of got, got a little bit busy and sidetracked and put it aside. So we're hoping to bring it actually back with maybe a VivTech podcast or something like that. So try and bring back a lot of those topics. But yeah, we tried to do talk about stuff that not it wasn't so it wasn't the same people asking the same breeders the same questions yeah you had some interesting topics i i was actually i was kind of disappointed i was like wait a minute they're not making any they're not making any more episodes <laughs> like what am i going to do but yeah it's it's time consuming and, and i mean look you're completely immersed in the whole exotics reptile amphibian world and sometimes you got to you can only you know you can only do so much like sometimes i'm spending like so much time doing the show i'm like man i'm like i, I I got to find another hobby here because this is just taking, it's taken so much out of me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely, I have definitely gotten to that point so far. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm in a good spot now. So like I said, I'm hoping to bring something back and bring up some of those difficult to have conversations and really drive the hobby in a better direction. I think in just in general, in all aspects of it. So I, I, I think there's a lot to be said and we can tackle some cool topics. So yeah, I'm hoping to get back out there. It'll be fun. Yeah, it's definitely a different animal now than it was a long time ago when I got started. But I mean, we'll tell you what, why don't we, I want to kind of walk through the progression of how things have evolved with lighting and what UV is now. But why don't you give all the listeners a little background about you first? Why don't you tell us about some of your earliest experiences with reptiles, amphibians, or whatever it was, and how did you end up where you are today? Dude, one of my, uh, one of my earliest memories I have as a kid, I don't ever remember not liking or having or touching or wanting to have reptiles or amphibians. Um, so my earliest memory as a kid, and this must've been when I was like four is being in a family reunion that happened at like a little state park that had a gazebo or something. And there was a pond. And I remember filling up cups with little American toadlets. Cause it was right at the week they were all coming out of the water. And I had 
I must have had thousands of them. Just in cups, stacked up on a bench, and then just dumped them all around me and played with toadlets. Like, that's, I don't ever remember not liking reptiles. But um, as I got older, I kind of, and I got through school, I had also had some passions with engineering and, like, like math and design and architecture. My grandpa uh, was an architect and uh, just built, uh, built homes. And uh, he actually had the opportunity to build some uh, Frank Lloyd Wright houses and designs. So it was really cool uh, growing up in that. And uh, so I ended up going to school for architectural engineering um, and, and graduated with a master's in wastewater treatment plant design. So nothing to do with animals whatsoever. <laughs> but I just kind of kept um, reptiles and, and pets more of, as more pets than a passion. So as a kind of a, just a hobby on the side. Um, and then in 2010, I started the Madison Area Herpetological Society in Wisconsin. Um, and through that, and got to know U.S. ARC and got involved in um, dealing with local laws in the, in the state and on the federal level. And through that, kind of got myself a name as a, in the hobby, I guess. Um, and then, let's see, uh, 2015 uh, or 2014, I was kind of headhunted by Zilla. Um, cause I had friends that worked there and, um, I started there in January, 2015, uh, and I was the brand manager and kind of ran, Z uh, the Zilla brand for, uh, six years and ended that, uh, about a year ago. And then the reason uh, about that's just about the almost actually two days ago is the year anniversary of, uh, the launch of VivTech, which is me and Erica's new company. So yeah, that's kind of the whole <laughs> That's the 50,000-foot uh, 50, uh, 50, view of, of how I got here. You know, I, one of the things that, that came up right off the top of my head, as soon as you mentioned toads, I mean, I remember being a kid, American toads were, when I was a little kid, they were pretty common. Now I don't see them too often anymore. But I was just thinking about, we were discussing how things started and where they are now. This is kind of an old thing. I don't even know if people, like, threaten their kids with this anymore. But did your mom ever tell you that you would get warts if you touched a toad? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. And you knew you get warts. Okay, yep. yeah. I don't know if that's still a thing anymore because i haven't heard anyone say it but maybe because there's no toads around i don't know i just that was a, <laughs> sorry that was the I've first thing that popped in my head still, i've definitely still heard it with a lot of the educational outreach i've done with the herp society and stuff i promise people still think that okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i haven't gotten too much into the way of toad content so i'm always curious how the how the other side lives i just i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, toads were, yeah, it was, and it was cool, kind of as, as a kid, um, my stepdad was a roofer, and uh, I remember he bring, brought me home, like, grazed tree frogs that he caught on the roof that he was trying to, he moved and kept in a little container and brought home, um, like, we'd go catch salamanders and stuff, I, I had tiger salamanders as a kid, I did, I did my fifth grade how-to presentation, like, how to feed my salamanders worms. So brought him into school and stuff like I've, I've always, I've always, you know, kind of had some, some weird connection to reptiles in some way. What about the, the Herp Society? How do you, how do you get something like that started and off the ground and get it to carry? Cause I know today a lot of people have like, um, like more virtual stuff, especially since 2020 Facebook groups. And I mean, I'm not on Facebook, but like Facebook groups and things like that. Do you think that having like an actual, like, face-to-face -face kind of situation where you have a like a brick and mortar type herb society is that something that's like hard to start off i mean what was the progression with that like it, it was it was it's always difficult i mean especially trying to get people away from their digital lifestyle um 
but I'm telling anybody that has the opportunity to get to an actual meeting and hang out with people in real life and actually talk to other humans, especially through COVID and all this, it's awesome. And it's so different. It's, it's so much nicer to actually go talk to people with experience and, you know, talk about, share each other's experiences. And you talk, you're able to talk to people who have really done things rather than you never know who you're talking to on the other side of the internet, man. You never know who, if that person that in a Facebook chat group or even on a dendro boards or whatever, you don't know if that person actually has any of the experiences they're talking. Um, I had a roommate uh, after college, I had a roommate that was also a reptile guy that used to ask me questions and Google stuff and then go answer questions on chat groups. You know, like like he knew this stuff about these animals or he he was the knowledge. Um, and he had no, he'd never even seen one in person. So like that's, there's people like that out there and 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 getting in person with, with the Herb Society is so, it's so much more fun, especially being able to do the outings and stuff that they do. Um, talk to little kids, get them excited about reptiles and amphibians. Like there's nothing that'll charge you up about your hobby more than getting a little kid excited about it. So, I mean, that's one thing that I think a lot of people just stopped realizing happens like you can go out and do those things and get involved and 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 talk to other people and totally get in a room full of herp nerds it's like a reptile show every weekend if you want you know um but no i wish i wish more people would get back into the herp societies and get more into in person and enjoy that but i think as life gets really complicated and fast moving it gets really difficult to schedule those things in it's kind of ironic when you think about it because now we have the means to be able to communicate with anyone around the world you know i mean even locally, you could communicate with other people in your state, your county, whatever, but we're still kind of stuck in that digital mode. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I live 20 minutes away, but you know what? We could talk over whatever platform people use, you know, message boards or whatever. And it's just like, people don't really seem to be able to like actually sit in front of each other and talk anymore. It just seems like everything is so impersonal now. No, exactly. And there's actually a lot of studies on the, on the sociology and stuff of that, how, People are, you know, people that don't get enough likes on something, how it actually affects your emotional state and things like that. It's, it's, you, it, uh, even, even to the extent of like getting to know people online, like you go to reptile shows that we've had to talk, me and Erica with a lot of people recently, uh, a friend of ours was uh, sexually assaulted at a reptile show um, by somebody that people in the industry thought was just a nice guy that always, you know, volunteered for things. Um, and it's been a lot of conversations of like, Hey, you actually don't know those people. Like if you see them all the time at shows or you see them all the time in chat groups, that doesn't mean you actually know those people. And I think that, that differentiation between really having immediate friends and family and close connections with people is going away to this digital feeling of knowing, you know, someone. So I don't know. There's something about actually being in person. That's just, I don't know. To me, it's nicer. And I definitely think we're missing out on it. I agree, and which is kind of ironic because I'm a pretty private and misanthropic person. I'm not a particularly social <laughs> person, but I, I enjoy talking to people. I mean, that's the other reason behind the show is, you know, I said to myself, look, you know what? There's a lot of questions that I have for people who are in different disciplines, people who are, you know, I, I had a conversation with a scientist who synthesized uh, betrachotoxin, which is the toxin that's active in phylobates species in a laboratory. And that was all he did. He didn't really get into frogs or whatnot, but like having a conversation with him was fascinating. Having a conversation with field workers, breeders, people like you, it's nice to be able to actually speak to a human being. You know what I mean? You you pick up on things like tone and intonation. You know, maybe we make maybe we actually make each other laugh a little bit, which is also fun. But 
I feel like so much of that is lacking. And that was kind of one of the other reasons why I was drawn to start this podcast was, you know, to have a real life discussion with someone that was not, you know, just a few lines condensed on a message board or, or whatever. And like, I don't, I don't like posting like anonymous stuff. I feel like, um, you know, you, you're going to want to know who you're talking to at least like, you know, at least on some, some kind of a personal level. No, absolutely. No. So I think that's, that's pretty much the biggest thing I can say about Herb societies is, <laughs> but, um, is yeah. And no, I mean, I think people miss out on that connection and the, the outreach too. Like everybody talks about, you know, oh, I wish people did their research first, but you know, before getting into animals or getting into something, you know, usually pets or something like that. But if nobody's out there telling them, Hey, these are more complicated than you think. And everything in the store says complete something kit. You have everything you need to know. Why, where, where's the, where's the trigger to make them think that it's us. We need to be out there telling them, Hey, if you want it, this is a pet. That's awesome. But know these things. And that's where you really make a bigger difference. You make a lot bigger difference, you know, being at a, a local fair or talking to kids and letting them pet a beard, a blue tongue skink or bearded dragon. Then you'll ever get talking to anyone on the internet ever. No, that's very true. That's very true. I did. I did some community outreach before COVID at my daughter's elementary school they had a, what they call a brown bag lunch where uh, during the colder months, like January, March, February, whatever, they'd have local parents come in and they would discuss, you know, something like a hobby or whatever. And um, like one of the moms did yoga. They, you know, they did different things. So, you know, I came in with the frogs and it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, just being able to actually interact with people and like, look, not, not every kid's going to be into it, which is fine. But the kids that were into it, were into it it was really really rewarding, you know, being able to have something that they could physically see and actually interact and just kind of get some of that excitement and pass it on to someone else who might say, Hey, listen, this is something that I want to do later in life. And I, unfortunately when COVID started, that all went out the window. So I'm hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to do it once more, but I don't know if it's going to, if it's going to happen the way things change so much. Yeah. Well, I know the local herb societies here and MAHS still are, are actually doing outreach. I did an event with them last two weekends ago um but no i mean there's still opportunities to get out and do that stuff and i think it's it's kind of cool to me too i think being able to talk to kids that you know are out there and excited about reptiles or even just learning about them it kind of grounds you sometimes uh, i think as as you know intermediate or expert level keepers when you get to a stage in your life where you just kind of have everything down to a, a note list like a checklist you know um and especially when you're caring for a large collection. And, and I think sometimes it's easy to get lost in that and not remember how cool, how cool it is, the things that we have in our life, you know, like I, I, I like that opportunity to talk to kids and see their faces and remember, like, I'm just, I just showing them a garter snake and it's the hundredth one I've caught that week, you know? So it's not a big deal to me, but to see their eyes light up and you kind of get that moment of like, oh yeah, this is still super cool, you know? Yeah, you have to remember fondly what got you into this in the first place. Like, I mean, like I have dart frogs now, and you know, it's part of my routine. I, I come home, I go downstairs, I, I obsess about them, I you know, <laughs> I feed, I yeah. put plants, I do, I do all that stuff. The whole, you know, that that whole um, upkeep a aspect of it. But as soon as I stop and think, and I say, you know what, I, I have these species of frogs that when I was a kid, you know, 30, 40 years ago this might have all have been like a unicorn. You know what I mean? I have something right. that in my wildest dreams as a kid, I never thought I would have. So I have to start appreciating it. So, <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think it's it's easy to it's easy to get kind of caught up in in the world of everything, especially like go to reptile shows and you or frog shows, whatever, and you see everything you've ever and never thought you'd ever see in real life. And then after a while, it just I don't know. It kind of I think we kind of get a little more used to it. 
And I know like my, even my kids have where I'm like, Hey, you guys want to go to a zoo and hold sloths? And they're like, yeah, done that. And I'm like, I broke you. I bro- <laughs> broke my kids. They're not excited to go hold an animal at the zoo. Um, but I think that we kind of get like that sometimes where it's just, just the norm, but yeah, no, having those moments where you get that second where you see, um, I've got uh, crocodile tagus and they've been out more times this week than I've seen them in the last year combined. Um, so that's been super cool. And that like, kind of just, I don't know, gives you that little bit of a, a cool moment of like, I, I know why I do this. That was an awesome moment. Yeah. It's satisfying when you have little, like little small victories. Like you have a species that just never comes out or an individual that you never see. And that one moment when you see it, you think, ah, oh, this is all worth it. It's exactly. Yep. Yeah. So while we're moving forward in the, the exotics hobby in general, one of the things that has advanced pretty significantly is, is lighting in particular UV lighting. And I mean, I'm going to date myself again, but I remember years ago, the first light that came out was called the Vitalite. And that was like the standard piece of equipment for species like iguanas. I mean, this was before bearded dragons were really in the trade in the U S but that subsequently developed more into like, um, the, I know zoo, zoo med had a lot of advancements with their bulbs and then we had things like Arcadia, and now we've got Euros with, with VivTech. Can you walk us through some of the, I guess, maybe like the progression of UV lighting? And um, well, I'll tell you what, before we do that, let's start out with what is UV lighting? Because I know we've got different ends of the UV spectrum. We've got UVA, BC. Just give us a quick kind of rundown of what UV is in general. Okay, perfect. So lighting... Lighting is a, a wide variety of, of wavelengths of, of energy waves that go through the atmosphere, the, through the universe, right? Um, and there's a tiny little segment of, of, of wavelengths that are, is visible light. And that's what we see. That's Roy G. Biv. That's all the colors of the rainbow that we see uh, coming from white light. There's two. There's other spectrums of light, like infrared light, which we can't see, but we can feel the heat from. And then there's ultraviolet, which is... Uh, 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 shorter wavelengths out the violet end of the visual spectrum for us so that gets uv light gets broken up into three sections talk about it there's four but we really only talk about three um uva uvb and uvc uvc causes um uh, biological materials to degrade so uvc is is bad it's what's used in sterilizers and causes bacteria to not be able to reproduce and then therefore become sterilized and not be dangerous um our atmosphere filters uvc um uvb it has a couple sections and shortwave uvb is like 280 nanometers to uh, I want to I want to say 240 off the top of my head, but I could be wrong with that. But it starts at about 280, and right around in there, that shortwave UVB is actually what causes sunburns and can cause skin cancer. So we want to avoid that. Um, and then the section of UVB that reptiles and amphibians and living animals really utilize is uh, 295 to 315 nanometers, and that's where D3 synthesis happens and uh, they that for calcium meta- uh, metabolizing and all that. Um, and then it goes upwards from there into short, uh, longer wave UVB. Um, there's some stuff in there that they they believe has a lot, has to do with um, uh, keeping the overproduction of D3 at bay um, and kind of being a buffer zone. And there's also some other things that happen in there. And then you get into UVA, and UVA is more. UVA is to me what I honestly believe is probably the most important part of keeping animals in captivity out of all of the supplements or out of the UVs because UVB is what we talk about the most, but you can supplement vitamin D3 and other um, uh, nutritional factors in order to basically replace 
the UVB uh, necessity. It's not 100% perfect, but you can. That's how we kept a lot of these animals before UVB. Um, but UVA, you can't you can't supplement anything to do what UVA does. Um, and UVA is uh, they can see it for one. So reptiles and amphibians can see it, not just iguanas, but snakes can see it, uh, turtles can see it. Um, it's incredible how many different types of animals can see UVA, um, even when you get into insects and birds and things like that. Um, so they, they can see a whole nother spectrum that we can't even really understand. We, we can't even understand what that looks like to them because we can't see it at all. Um, and then uh, it also it, uh, has a lot to do with serotonin development in their brain. Uh, so their natural behaviors, when you think like without it, they basically kind of have seasonal depression and, and don't think depression like sadness, but more like that lack of wanting to do anything, um, that lack of natural behavior. When you're depressed, you don't want to get up and run. You don't want to do your normal routine. You don't eat as well. Um, you don't do as well. And, and, and even emotionally, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're dragging. So um, people who suffer with a lot of depression generally have a lot of other health issues and uh, that go along with it because of it. And you can actually kind of see that in a lot of animals kept in captivity. If you compare how like a bearded dragon looks in captivity um, to a wild bearded dragon, you'll start to, or even one that you see under like our VivTech light, which has a way higher output of UVA and a, a much broader wavelength, you'll start to see more natural behaviors. And you can kind of see how that UVA affects them. Um, and it's easy for us to see if you walk outside on a, a sunny day and that sun hits you in the face and you just feel happier or better than on a cloudy day where you don't get that, emo that emotional reaction from the weather. Um, or if you do, it's just not as positive. Um, that's the Im immediate effects of UVA, UVA on our brains. So it affects not only reptiles, but also humans. I could also see it being disruptive towards the circadian rhythm like, um, I mean, a bearded dragon is a good example. I like to get mine outside a little bit in the summer to get some, just some natural sun, just to get, you know, get outside, get some fresh air. And when you bring him outside, his first, I guess, reaction is they, you know, he kind of flips out a little bit. And I mean, and from what I understand from talking to other people, like years ago, they, I forget, there was some sort of like colloquial term for it, but if you brought indoor animals outside, they, they, you know, people thought that they freaked out. But from what I understand, it's just they're being exposed to the full spectrum of the sunlight, so they're seeing things that they wouldn't other norm, otherwise normally see. So I yep. could see a lack of different wavelengths definitely interrupting the, the circadian rhythm of, you know, a, 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 the normal activities of, of of any you know of any animal really. But it's it's interesting how. Something that you can't even, something that we can't even see, can have such a significant effect on another animal's just, you know, life cycle. Uh, life cycle. Oh, absolutely. Well, and the thing is, too, is it actually it affects us this bad too. We just don't talk about it, and nobody really realizes it. So, people who suffer from seasonal depression, which is anyone in the northern half of the United States in January, like people deal with seasonal depression all the time. The lights, those mood lights, or see depression lights that you can get. Those are literally UVA emitting lights. That's what they are. They emit UVA. It helps with serotonin boost in your in your body. It has UVB. It helps with your D3 synthesis or the, the UVA and some of there so that it helps you feel better because you're it's you're not able to get the sunlight. You would need to feel better when it's cold and crappy out and snowing and awful. So how did UV lighting evolve in the past couple of decades? I mean, like I said, I, I remember the, the Vitalite. And at a time going in the seven in this in this like the sixties and seventies, 
in the early 80s, there really wasn't that much of an understanding. A lot of species were bred in South Florida, where they had greater seasonal exposure to sunlight, especially especially tropical species, I could say. And then you had the Vitalite, and then you had other designs. I mean, walk us through the history of, of how UV lighting kind of started out and where it ended up to where it is now. Yeah, so Vitalite and those kind of things were, were more, if I remember correctly, it, they, Vitalite was more of a UVA full spectrum, uh, full visible spectrum. Um, so it had the full visible spectrum, but then it had a little bit of the UVA. And then um, we didn't get a good UVB output bulb, I don't think, until 93 or 94 is when Zoomed came out with the, the TA strip lights. Um, and that, so, and how fluorescent bulbs work, and not most people don't really realize this or understand the science behind fluorescent bulbs. So, and this will kind of help to, to talk about all the different technologies is how they work. So inside of a, a typical bulb that was is used in like um, a warehouse or, or just industrial lighting or office lighting or whatever, um, it's going to have a normal silica glass tube, um, and it can because the uh, it doesn't need any of the UV waves to get through it. It wants to filter all the UV lengths or wavelengths. Um, for us, for reptile keepers, we want UV wavelengths to get through. We just want only specific ones, so they have to use a silica glass. So the silica glass allows UV wavelengths to get through. Now, it's also a problem because what if you were to take just plain glass and put a, a drop of mercury in there, there's two diodes on the end, and fire the mercury into it, basically a gas, um, it emits almost all UVC. So, so it's very bad. It's basically a sterilizer. Um, what they do is they coat the inside of the bulbs with phosphors, and these different chemical phosphors uh, either block out certain wavelengths or shift them. Um, and by doing that, we're able to get a better, depending on the mixture, you can get better uh, UVB and UVA outputs and block out the, the UVC. Um, and that's what reptile bulbs do, is so those phosphors block. Now, there's some spaces within the UVA range where um, fluorescent bulbs will say they have UVA, and they kind of do, but they kind of don't. It's, it's very, very little output. Uh, through most of the UVA spectrum. And then there's tiny little spaces where the phosphor doesn't completely block it and tiny little wavelengths of light get or uh, energy shoot through. So you'll see a really shallow, really, or a really short, really tall spike of energy through on, on like, a, if you're looking at a spectral reading. Um, so instead of say it's a hundred wavelengths of UV or a hundred nanometers of UVA, you get a ton of power through like two of them. So that may not give the animals what they need in order to see it or hitting those uh, serotonin development uh, uh, and other hormonal changes in the wavelengths, those, in those UVA wavelengths. If it's not on one of those, it may not be doing much. So they can say that it gives off UVA, but it's not really much of a usable, like they're not able to utilize that UVA. Um, and that's, but that's fluorescent. Um, and then from there, we ended up, it, uh, we've got uh, one further technologies of uh, mercury vapor and metal halide. Um, both of those, again, pretty much work the same. They have uh, different phosphors that block uh, mercury, um, a mercury vapor reaction. So, and depending on how they do it, depends on the outputs and things like that. And with those two, you add heat to it. Um, when it comes to the, uh, and the other thing too is all those types of technologies are passed through electrical technologies. So you only utilize maybe 20% to 50%, 60% of the energy that goes through that bulb is actually used the rest of it goes back into the system but you pay for it um so when you talk about led led is a one-way system 
So all of the energy that goes to the, to the diode is utilized, um, and usually they're about 98% efficient. Uh, that 2% is usually uh, dissipated as heat. Um, and that's why they also don't really release that much heat. Um, and with the, with the diodes, the way that they work is it's two thin perforated pieces of metal and energy is run through them. And depending on how the perforations are sized and uh, uh, patterned, will adjust the type of wavelength that they give off. And you can, you can really utilize very tight specific wavelengths or very broad wavelengths depending on the types of LEDs that are used. Um, and then you end up being able to get a lot more energy efficient because you're not wasting so much energy. Where did the coil bulbs come into the equation? Because I know those kind of became like a compact option yep. within the past decade or so. What, what, how did those uh, come into being? Those weren't actually weren't too long after probably into the early 2000s. Um, I don't have an exact data when those came into play, but re really those are almost exactly the same as a fluorescent tube. The, the only difference is, well, there's a couple different, two different main differences. With a tube, you're trying to create full coverage UV light, UV coverage. Um, and with a, with the coil, you're creating a spot. I honestly like a spot better than full coverage. And the reason is because most, let's say bearded dragons are going to end up kind of becoming a good example for all the good and bad that's done with reptiles. But, um, if you, let's say somebody gets a bearded dragon and they get it, they decide they're going to go on Craigslist and get a 55 gallon tank and put it in there with a screen top and they put a four foot UV light over it, just like the internet says, and a heat light. And they tile the bottom because that's what the Facebook groups say to do. And they put a half log in there and a water bowl. That animal really can't regulate its UV. There's no gradient for that animal to work through. It, the gradient from the bulb is really top, up, up and down. So if you don't give them a lot of vertical space to climb and utilize, then they can't really utilize that gradient. And they can't also, if you don't create enough hiding places and, and shade and things like that, they can't get away from it. So while it's a great idea for trying to create full coverage like the sun would have, it, without the knowledge of how to create those gradients within a cage and create lighting distribution or disturbances and things like that, you could really just end up baking the animal and not ever letting it get away from the sun. So I really prefer a spotlight. Um, and that's what the coil does. The coil allows you to have a spotlight where you have a higher concentration of UV that dissipates as you move away from it in any direction. It's interesting because I hear so many different, like, I, I try to stay open-minded. I try to stay objective and I hear so many different things and this bulb is good. This bulb is better. This bulb is, doesn't work. My rationale has always been this, and it's kind of in line with what, what you said. I'm always reluctant to put something over an animal that it really can't escape. You know what I mean? And exactly. you have to ask yourself, at what point in, in a, the natural 24-hour period is an animal exposed to full-on UV radiation during the course of the day? You know, I mean, should it really be 12 hours? Uh, th that's given me a lot of reluctance to use UV. Well, that and some other more practical reasons like um, with dart frogs, but we'll, we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. So like my issue was, how do I know what this bulb is doing? Because I can see the visible aspect of it, but yep. I can't see, I can't see the actual UV waves. I can't quantify that. So recently people started measuring the outputs of their UV, uh, excuse me, of their UV bulbs and it's been kind of like all over the place. So like, how do, you, how do you go about measuring the UV output of your bulb if you want to check and make sure that it's not doing too much or if it's doing too little? How would you go about doing that? 
So realistically, this whole entire thing is so convoluted and crazy and horrible that I, I'm going to give you all the answers of what the hobby says, but then I'm going to explain to you how it's all wrong and we're kind of in limbo here. Um, <laughs> realistically, there are zero studies that ever... When I was at Zillow, we were looking at the UV bulbs, and even with looking at the UV bulbs again for Vivitech, I wanted to get an idea of how much how much UV does a bearded dragon actually see a day? Like if I strapped a solar meter to its back, and only pushed the button and recorded it for lengths of time when it was in the sun, how much, how many nano microwatts per square centimeter per day does it actually get? And then from there, extrapolate that out to, okay, if we have it on for 12 hours and we gave it to them then, where would we go from there? Would we go, you know, low, we'd obviously go lower than that, but maybe not all the way to, ha you know, to halfway down or whatever. We, we don't have a way to do that. So there's really, realistically, I think how UV goes and I have no basis for this other than I can't imagine how else they did it, is they kind of just, when it started with UV, started with a lot of different options and picked the ones that didn't cause negative reactions. So, and then when it comes to like the Ferguson zones and measuring the Ferguson zones, the paper that the Ferguson zones was based on measured 25 species of reptile in two states in the United States. And then extrapolated that to everywhere in the entire world. So, and the UV index, which we talk about with the Ferguson zones, the UV index is a, a formula created by a Canadian meteorologist to tell you based on your skin color or the, the darkness of your skin, how fast you're going to get a sunburn. So, <laughs> so knowing all that kind of doesn't make sense why we utilize those things. But really when it comes down to it, the Ferguson zones is the same wavelengths that give up give us sunburns over long periods of time are bad for reptiles too so we it's kind of we kind of assume then that if we get a bad reading on a solar meter a high uv index that it's something wrong with the like the bulb is giving off bad wavelengths and if we when we're talking about and feel free to cut in anytime if you need me to clarify anything because this is kind of a lot but no go ahead um, go ahead That's what... when, when we're talking we're talking about sunlight if I go outside and I take my solar meter or my, not my solar meter, but my actual photo spectrometer outside or my solar meters or whatever, and I take measurements outside of my house and the weather every day for the next five days is identical, same humidity, same everything. The sun basically gives off the same wavelength. When you're talking about what, like what I said with the LED, if I can make it put out whatever I want and UV index is a weighted formula that weights UVA, UVB and UVC then I can manipulate it. And I did another podcast with a video uh, with the Animals at Home podcast with Dylan. And for anybody who wants to watch this part of this, just even this part of it, it's really beneficial. But I got a, an LED bulb uh, off from a vendor in China, just a random no-name vendor. And when I tested it, it looked perfect under the UV index. And then the UVB, like from the 6.2 solar meter, was a little bit low. And I understood that it was low, but to the average person, they might not have seen a, that much of a difference. And really, they probably would have only been using the UV index. So the UV index looks fine. When I put this under a uh, spectral uh, a photo spectrometer, it actually has a lot. Of, it had UVA and mostly UVC with almost no UVB at all. So because of the way that formula is weighted, it had a little bit of UVC and it had a lot of UVA which averaged out the same reading as something with a good amount of UVB, a good amount of UVA, and very little UVC. 
So because it's a weighted formula, you're able to manipulate it. And that's the only, that's, that's, that's one of the problems with it. So realistically, you kind of have to look at all chunks of a bulb if you really want to know how good it is. And the only way to honestly know 100% is to buy your own photo spectrometer. And because everybody doesn't have an extra 10 grand, you really have to rely on the manufacturers to be open with their, their measurements and then understand how to utilize the UV index and UVB, but understand that it has some fail. It has some, some weaknesses. Okay. Here's, here's my take. And like I said, <laughs> I, tr I try to be, uh, I try to be objective about this because to be honest, with the exception of my bearded dragon, I don't really incorporate much in the way of, of UV for anything. I, I've used it for a couple of my white street frogs, but I don't incorporate it into everything. And in part because, and, and again, don't don't everyone come out and like come after me after I say this, but I do feel like that there is a manufacturer's bias towards trying to sell a certain product as being indispensable, despite the fact that we might not necessarily know how effective it is. It's like, oh, 100%. it's like, for example, like, like uh, maybe this is a bad example, but like dietary supplements, they all come with a statement that says this has not been evaluated, evaluated by the FDA. So like, for example, recently there was a study done in melatonin, melatonin as a supplement has become more popular. Uh, funny while we're talking about circadian rhythms, but melatonin has become a more popular supplement lately and testing revealed that the dosage on the bottle per pill actually varies very, 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 very significantly between batch to batch, pill to pill or whatever. So you don't really know exactly how much of a certain material you're getting because, and obviously this is, this is animal lighting. This is not for, for humans. So you're not going to have the same, necessarily the same quality control. So I see people come all, um, very, very adamantly in favor of UV bulbs without understanding the fact that there can be very many flaws to it. So I'm reluctant to put something above my animal that could potentially be ineffective or cause harm without any real way of quantifying it. And like you said, to really get into it, you're going to need a, you're going to need a fair amount of background information on it. So, to, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, but like to get to the point, I think that the average person, myself included, I mean, I know, I understand lighting, I understand color temperature, I understand lumens, et cetera, whatnot. I mean, obviously, you know, grow plants in the, in the, in the dart frog vivarium. So you have to have some understanding, but I feel like people want to take the guesswork out of it. So they automatically assume that by buying any UV bulb that is tailor suited to the animal in question. And it seems like for the last couple of decades, you've got the, the desert bulb, which is, oh a high, which is a high UVB or excuse me, high, high, whether it's UVB, UVA or combination of yep. both. And then you've got the, the, the lower, like the, the tropical one. The tropical. And, yep. and I, I feel like it's a hard decision for people to make because like take, take where I am here in, in the Northeastern United States, we're not going to get the, the, the intensity of the full sun in, I mean, like right now, the day we're recording this now is actually the first day of summer. So today's a long day, but we're going to get yeah. really, really intense sunlight between like the middle, middle of May into like the beginning of September. Whereas other parts of the world, you're going to have a lot more and other world parts, you're going to have a lot less. So it's like, how do you, how do you decide between only two choices? Like what's right? You know I mean? That's where I lose confidence because I say to myself, well, I mean, I know my bearded dragon comes from an area that's going to have more, more intense sun, but it's not necessarily going to be a full 12 hours, you know, blasting it a day, but other species that I have that are a lot more crepuscular, 
I know that they're not going to be out basking for more than a couple of you know, more than a couple of minutes because I've like for example like Ufaga Pamilio, they'll go out and they'll bask, but they're not going to sit in the sun for hours and hours on end, even regardless of how intense it is. So, what what's your take on that? Like the the availability of UV options and the manufacturers kind of making people feel like you, you have to have this and it might not necessarily be the accurate product that the average person is looking for. What, what are your thoughts on my well, little, my little I, rant here? <laughs> I totally get it, man. And I worked, Zilla is a giant corporation and they do a ton of stupid giant corporate crap. That's why big part of why I'm not there. But at the same time, like the, the, they are selling a product, um, all of those companies, but there, there's a lot of truth to it. And, re- and, and what, one thing I tell people is don't, don't just trust what any company says ever. Oh my God, don't ever do that ever. Um, but, but go find, uh, you know, other, other sec, um, third party testing. Um, if you want to look into UV and the bulbs, you can go to, uh, there's a lighting reptile lighting Facebook group, uh, has got Dr. Francis Baines and Serena Wunderlich in it, who are two German scientists that do a lot with UV. Um, and they put out just third-party research of the bulbs. Um, and then the other thing is, too, is just try and find companies that and, and that will put their money where their mouth is to an extent. You know, like with the VivTech bulbs, um, I showed the spectral reading live on a podcast. Everybody can go watch it. Um, you know, stuff like that. We're trying to trying to be more transparent. Um, but the other thing too is if, look into the science behind a lot of it. So UVA is a good example. UVA, up to even up to a couple of years ago, I read an article in a pet products magazine that was uh it was I can't remember who it was, but it was interviewing a very well-known uh reptile breeder in the United States, and they had talked about uh, that owned a big store and stuff like that, and talked about how um UVA was a marketing gimmick. And he was totally wrong and totally right at the same time. And that super did made me livid because UVA on a, an incandescent bulb, like uh, Exoterra makes daylight bulbs that have UVA. Those have what's called a neodymium coating, which does transfer some of the light into the UVA spectrum. It's not a lot, though, and it's not enough to really change your animal's behaviors or do anything. It just technically creates UVA, sort of technically. That is a marketing gimmick. That's a bunch of crap. But UVA in general is not a bunch of crap. And that if you look at um, a lot of the studies that I use to to talk about people about UVA, I can go get a book in my uh, library right now that's about the reptiles of San Diego from 1945. And it talks about the parietal eye and UVA uh, in fence lizards. Like this from 19, like 45 or 48 or something like that. The science behind how UVA uh, and different UV lighting affects animals' brains and their behaviors and their hormonal changes. This has been around for a really, really long time. It's just that reptile keepers and big and reptile, uh, as the hobby's grown, there's a lot of stuff trying to make reptiles cheap and easy. Cheap, it's a cheap pet, pet that any or amphibians, reptiles, whatever. Cheap pet anybody can get. They're easy to keep. I mean, pet coast selling dart frogs. That's horrendous. Like that is not something they should have. But they're trying to continuously push that. It's easy to keep. It's easy to do. Um, and in doing so, unfortunately, I think they're kind of um, they're just setting everybody up to fail. 
And and yeah, I don't even know where I was going with that for a minute. No, but, I, I no, agree. It's it's, it's one know? of those it's one of those topics where. I mean, again, I, I have my opinions, but I, I like to stay objective and I'll take something as fact or as close to fact if I can quantify it, if I can objectively quantify it, if I can measure it and I could say, okay, this is effective. Yep. The problem is I don't think that the average person really, um, how do I put this? It's going to be, it's going to be a pain for the average person who doesn't know much about lighting, doesn't really want to, I mean, like, oh, look, for, like, for example, like. You know, I, I record on, on a computer. Like, I don't know anything about computers. All I know is I turn it on and it goes. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, like, my wife's really good with that stuff. She knows how to, how to you know, she can build one from the ground up. I, I don't get it. So I need someone to kind of, a trusted source to explain to me and say, okay, well, this is what you need. But I find that whenever you do know a little bit more, when you question how effective something might be, people have been so you know, predisposed by the market to say that if you're not offering UVB, you're some sort of a monster. When in reality, it might be, there might be more nuances to it. Like for example, um, Ufaga pamilia, some of the law and, and some of the larger, um, the Ufaga species. I know a few people who will use a bird light, which is like full, uh, full spectrum UV, yeah, I guess. U, yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah and what, what these people will do is they'll just kind of open the tank up set the bulb in there for maybe an hour and the frogs will come out. They'll, they'll gravitate towards it. They'll bask for a little bit. And then you take the light out. You know what I mean? You're not parking it for 12 hours at a clip over the top of the tank. And especially it's difficult in glass tanks because it's not going to permeate through that glass, but you know, then you'd have to put over the screen and you know, it's like, am, are you overdoing it? You know? Well, so with the, with those kind of bulbs, first the, the UVB doesn't penetrate, but the UVA does. So you can use, you don't have to, you can put it right above the screen, glass tops, it doesn't matter, UVA will penetrate. Um, and again, I think we get kind of stuck in the conversation of UVB. When it comes to UVB, there's a ton of animals that need it, almost everything needs it or utilizes it at some point, but they don't need it to, a lot of animals don't need it to survive. You can, again, you can supplement, dart frogs get supplemented D3, they get supplemented calcium, they get supplemented, so they, can, they don't need UVB to be alive. That's what, unfortunately, we get hung up on when we start talking UV bulbs. And what we need to focus more, again, is like, again, back to the UVA. So when it comes to, again, for, so for UVB, the whole conversation is, do they need it? Does every animal need it to be alive? No. Um, there's plenty of them that can live without it. There's plenty of them that can live without it without much for supplementation, um, especially in the amphibian side. Um, those animals generally are a little bit more uh, nocturnal rather than crepuscular. Um, so they can absolutely live their whole life without it and be fine. That's why we've been able to breed leopard geckos in drawers for, for 30 years. But if we're talking about recreating an animal's natural environment and giving it the experience of living in a habitat that it would have if it was living in a wild habitat, then it's, then it's a no question because UVA and all the UVA does when you're talking about serotonin development in their brain, how they see their surroundings. Um, if you look at pictures of, of UVA, how birds see each other, how um, bees see flowers versus how we do, even all of the bioluminescence in reptiles, all of the reporting that's been done on that, all of that is UVA spectrum that we can't see. So when we're looking at their tanks and we're going, yeah, they don't really need it or they do need it, we're looking at it through our eyes. And unfortunately, our eyes can't even understand what they're seeing in order to be empathetic for it. 
So it's, it's, it's hard for me because it's, it's without giving animals that you're basically leaving them in a situation where they're chemically in their brain, they're living in a a depression type state. Now they're still going to breed and they're still going to exist and they're still going to be fine, but you're not going to see as much of the natural behaviors, natural colors. You're not going to see as healthy of animals. And when it comes to that, that's the question is it's, it's a, it's a huge step up in the improvement and the husbandry and the care of the animals because of what it does for them mentally and, and, uh, hormonally, but it's not necessary for them to be alive. And then that's just the question you have to ask yourself when you get to that, when you're talking about UVB, yeah, then the, then it can be, it could be more of a discussion of whether they need it or not. You can discuss that more, but when it comes to UVA, it's not that to me, that's not much of a discussion. Yeah. I think about a lot of the animals that are sort of, I guess, hobby staples, animals that breed quickly, breed easily, are simple to keep, you know, your bearded dragons, ball pythons, corn snakes, things like that, which are generally suit themselves very, very well to, I mean, I shouldn't say a broad range of care, but they're more forgiving than say, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a wild caught, you know, um, I'm trying to give an example, but uh, you know, like, well, most dart frogs shouldn't be wild caught anyway, but, um, even like tokes or anything like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the other argument is a lot of, especially tree frog species are nocturnal. I mean, they're only active after dark. So you got to ask yourself, what effect does UVA have on that? Does that, cause I know people who have, I mean, it, it, my experience most of the people that I've dealt with don't offer any kind of UV and they've never had any health issues, but in part also because we, we do supplement re- really heavily, especially with dart frogs. So, I mean, you, you have to supplement them because the fruit fly diet that, that we generally feed is kind of, it's not very nutritionally complete. So exactly. like I was, like I was, there was a, a post on Dendro board at this point, it would have been a while back, but someone had asked why, um, fruit flies are a staple feeder and there's a few good reasons, but it's really not for their nutritional content. It's really more just because they lend themselves so well to, to breeding, they're cheap, whatever. It's really, it's because sub- of, it's because yeah. of the labs. Yeah. It's because actually, and actually that's where the whole hobby got their feeders from, Yeah, which is crazy to me too. Like even there, you're, you're exactly right. Like well, you got to supplement the crap out of them because they're basically empty calories exactly so it really it's really just the, the supplementation that makes its way in. i mean that's that's a whole other discussion in terms of, of diet and supplementation but like for that i mean the other thing is with with vitamin d3 added to a supplement uh, you know to a supplementation uh, practice like that you're not going to want to overdo it with uv radiation in addition to that because a lot of people don't realize that in certain situations it's 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 either or you know what i mean so right like with our frogs especially we we want to be careful how we supplement and you know what it runs a gamut people have different opinions but i i like to think somewhere in the middle you know what i mean not too much not too little because certain vitamins that are fat soluble you you can obviously overdose and um i don't know it's it's just it's I, I, at least in the frog community we really don't have a general consensus the way i guess more established hobby staples would be although i don't know i mean look i, well, I have I think with frogs, it comes down to a lot of realistically with completely enclosed glass enclosures and that being the way of growth of frogs have always been the bioactive there. You can't do frogs. And I mean, you can, but it's very hard to do frogs very artificially. So they've had to be that now, but when it comes to the lighting sector of it, 
lighting never really caught on with frogs because you're right it was aimed at like bearded dragons and things like that and even when you talk about uv bulbs like tropical versus desert that you there's nothing that sets my blood pressure off than people saying tropical and desert because when you look at a desert bulb it's the dunes of the sahara and the tropical is the rainforest floor and there's other habitats in the world like quite a few other kinds than just that you know we've picked the two extremes to go towards and it makes no sense um but the other thing too is when we look at animals we kind of look at uv wrong we just kind of look at whether it needs it to be alive or not and when you're coming when you're talking about uv animals that have high uv needs bearded dragons are one that pop up a lot but the do do you know where the highest uv um need animal or reptile in the world lives if I was to take a guess, I'd say Australia, maybe? Nope. Caribbean. Okay. Rhino iguanas, cyclera. They all live on white sand beaches at the equator, and they stay outside on the beaches and rocks all day during noon sunlight. Like, they get hammered by UV. But that would never you would never give an animal that lives on a tropical island a desert bulb. So it's this weird backwards way of thinking. And really what we need to look at is more of the Ferguson zones. And it's not perfect, but it's at least a little bit better than just tropical and desert or need it or don't need it. So the Ferguson zones kind of help to get people to understand that there's different gradients of UV. And the way we think about things doesn't really work in the real world. Like Euromastics, you would think immediately. Deserts, pound them with UV. But there's a problem with that. In the deserts where they live, there's a lot of sand and dust in the air. And that dust is a lot of silica dust, and it refracts a ton of the light and blocks a lot of it. So even on a really sunny day, you get way lower UV readings than you'd expect. So we don't think about that in those microclimates and the way that those animals utilize all those habitats. And that's really more how we need to think. So when you think about a frog and where the habitat is, yes, they live in forest floors. They live, but humilia go up and down trees. In order to say they never, they really don't need any UV because they never come in contact with it. Like they totally come in contact with it all the time. There's light that gets through onto the trees that they jump through. Um, there's tons of areas that dart frogs live that uh, have open areas of patches of land around them. Um, and it's the same thing like you see with a lot of dart frogs uh, and keepers that are constantly worried about humidity and how humidity doesn't mean wet. But in 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 hobbyists, it's hard to get them to see that wet and humidity aren't the same thing. And if you keep your tank consistently wet you grow bacteria and end up killing everything off. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's one of the big mistakes that people often make with with lots of species of frogs. It's just they they soak the place and it's not... It, look, our frogs don't live in a swamp. They're not aquatic. They're not even semi-aquatic. They, they appreciate high humidity. So it's that it's that fine balance. But again, people kind of automatically assume... Well, they come from the South America. It's got to be soaking wet all the time, yep. and it isn't. And like that's another... well, and that's how it goes. That's how it goes with the UV too. They go. They, yeah. they live under the forest canopy, so they never need it. Well, that's kind of crazy. Like, yes, they they don't probably need it to be alive. Again, but we really need to take that into consideration. What you're saying is is a difference between does an animal need it to thrive and to act more natural and to be the healthiest it can be. Or are you just trying to keep them alive and breeding? Because they're different. And I hate to put it that way, but it, it really is that way. Especially when you're talking about the hormonal and the mental stimulants that UVA causes and how they see their world. We're keeping them depressed and colorblind. And like, it just doesn't make sense, you know? Um, 
and that's where that's where for me uv has been such a huge thing is because like personally i suffer from depression so i understand that feeling and, and not wanting to get out and and having a moment where you realize how it affects the serotonin development in their brain similar to us it kind of gives you that minute of like okay that kind of sucks i don't really like that idea yeah and that, i mean that can i mean again i don't really know how, what the obviously there hasn't been this the same study in, in animals as humans but i mean that can also there can be other comorbidity uh, other comorbidities over there like um o- obesity lack of energy etc things like oh, that absolutely. i mean we we know that captive animals get diseases similar to the way people would in terms of inactivity and there, there's obese snakes and there are things that have their life expectancy shortened because of eating the improper diet and whatnot i mean i could 100%. i could see that being a problem in terms of a holistic approach but my my qualm with frogs is, I mean, there's there's a large number of species available that are, by and large, many are similar, but there's a few that that stick out, and like for example, I'd have to say like Phyllomedusa sauvage, the the waxy monkey tree frog, yep. which basically, Absolutely. you know, it, it's like an easy bake oven up there in the canopy. That that's they've adapted to be able to handle that, and then you have. White's tree frogs, which a lot of people don't really seem to give in, enough heat that they need. They need, a, they need a hot basking spot. And then you have dart frogs, which are kind of casual. And then you have some frogs that are just really, really secretive. I mean, there's fos- not that many in the trade, but there's frogs that are fossorial. There are frogs that are solely nocturnal. There's lots of species of salamanders that just completely disappear during the day entirely. So you have to ask yourself then, are we applying that mode universally to, to every species? Because I feel like when you go to the store and you look at a UVV, excuse me, UV bulb, it'll have like three pictures. It'll have like, you know, bearded dragon, uromastics, and maybe a species of monitor. Then you have the other one that has, you know, a ball python and I don't know. Chinese just, water dragon. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then there's a frog in there. Yep, and it really it doesn't jive because it's not the same per species. I just that's one of those things I feel like. I mean, no like disrespect to the reptile world, but I feel like the reptile world. It's like, well, we've got ball pythons, we've got corn snakes, we've got crested geckos, we've got leopard geckos. Oh, and then we've got frogs over there in the corner. And then it's honestly reptile husbandry in the hobby in general. It's all very very broad stroke, and a lot of that has to do with the way that the companies have set it up, like it's tropical or desert it's it's this or that it's always one or the other when very few animals ever fall into any one or the other scenario ever and instead of looking at like micro so even let's put it this way i think a big reason that we see the hobby the way it is is and this is how uh, in 2015 i hosted the the madison air herb society hosted the midwest herb symposium and we had i flew in dave barker to be the keynote speaker and he talked about what he called his dead parakeet theory. Mm. And it makes sense to how we kind of went at husbandry with reptiles and everything. Um, any, any exotic animal, pets, anything. We got an animal. We decided we wanted to keep it. We put it in some sort of container and then it died. So then we figured out a couple of things that it might need to stay alive. And then it lived a little longer and then it died. And we continuously added little pieces to this, whether it be nutritional supplements or heat or lighting or food or whatever, uh, you know, and we continuously added things until the animals stopped dying. And then once they stopped dying and they lived long enough for us to say they've lived past their expected life expectancy, we said, that's, that's it. 
that's where husbandry stops. That's all you need to do. And the problem with that, though, is there's so many pieces of of even human health and micronutrients and things for us that the same thing happens with those animals. They get so much diversity within their within the wild, within their their diet. The even when they drink water, think about all of the dust particles on a leaf and every uh, element and component that's on there when they drink that, or when the frogs are jumping on the soil in the rainforest floor, which is actually made of you know, the dust from the Sahara that blew over in the jet stream, all of the different nutrients that they're coming in contact with. And we've simps- we've simplified everything down to the bare minimum they need to not die. And I'd like to, I, I want to see the hobby take a different approach and and start to look more at, okay, what are, now that we know how to not kill them, how can we move forward from this? How can keeping be bigger? How can we create better natural habitats and better environments and 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 not just be focusing on like, the next morph for the next thing but how can we create a literal piece of an outside world and in, in, in a way that those animals see it the same way they would if they were there yeah i want to get into that how how you i mean you have a different line of bulbs i, I want to get into that how you you're working to sort of solve that problem but real quick while, while it's on my mind different morphs i, I mean obviously there's morphs occur naturally in nature it, it happens but We've selectively, well, not so much in the dark frog world because we don't really do that yeah. too much, but certain individuals have selected for al- albinos, lighter colored animals, darker colored animals. What are your thoughts on how UV radiation would affect animals that were, were lacking pigment, such as like an albino or something with them? Um, oh, with it'll, it'll 100% melanin? affect them. It'll 100% affect them, but it's going to be different in every animal and how the melanin's affected, how their eyes are affected. Um, with dart frogs, I would expect albino dart frogs to be much more sensitive to UVB, not as much UVA, um, but UVB and bright, even bright light in general. I would expect them to be really sensitive to just because skin wise, even if they close their eyes, it would do, it would do nothing um, versus if you're talking like an albino iguana, those guys are generally have hard time seeing anyway and you know overexposure to uv might be a thing but realistically with those guys the the overexposure to uv has a lot more to do with refractive refract refractive refract reflective refractive there we go that's the word crystals that are in a lot of these reptile skin um that actually refract back and reflect back a lot of the uv it would still be there in an albino, but it, it changes how effective it is. So it kind of comes on a case by case basis, but it definitely is going to change how they utilize it or at least how fast they absorb it. Yeah. That was another one of the questions I was always, I always ask myself is again, how, how do you quantify it? You know what I mean? Like for, for example, like I'm really like fair skin, like I'm a dirty ginger, you know what I mean? I got red <laughs> hair, I got freckles. If I go outside now in the full sun, I, I have to put sunblock on, I'm done. But that's just me as an individual. You know what I mean? Certain yep. people, certain people who have the skin, the same skin tone as me might not burn as quickly. So I'm always curious, like, is, is there differences in terms of individual animals tolerance? You know what I mean? Oh, I'm, Does I'm it... sure there is. I, I think, I think too often we get in this idea that like a, a, a tink, uh, you know, a Patricia tink is a Patricia tink. That's it. I mean, they're all a little different, but like. I think I see it a lot more on the reptile side because of people chasing morphs, but like every single person wants every tiny little variant in an animal to be some new genetic anomaly. And I have to, I tell people all the time, I'm like, look around the room, man. Like, <laughs> we're not all morphs. We're just not all exactly the same. 
you know, so that you still see that variation in animals and variation in metabolisms, everything, every single piece of an animal's life has a variant, just like it does for us. It's just not anthropomorphizing them, but it's they're they're biologically still going to have differences. Yeah, I think that we don't always realize that every animal that we have is not going to be the type specimen. I mean, there's going to be some variation. Like I have certain animals that got huge. I have certain animals that that didn't, you know? I mean, maybe part of, part of that's just the way I I do things, but like my snakes for example, like I I never really overloaded my snakes with food to try and get them really really large really fast. And for me that's paid off because they're not gigantic, but they've lived a lot longer. The snakes that I fed more sparingly generally lived longer than the ones that ate more. So, oh, yeah. well, and, and that's how they're biologically meant, but it's very hard as we, as humans, we're, we like to pretend we're and talk about how we empathy and our ability to empathize and things like that, but we're very bad at empathizing with non humans in a way that makes sense. We empathize with people or with animals in a way that we would empathize with humans, which makes it difficult instead of seeing that those animals don't, their heart doesn't beat the same. Their metabolism's not the same. The way they see the world's not the same. I mean, you look at a python, a python can see infrared and UV and smell in 3D. Like, how am I supposed to understand an animal that can do all of that? And I can't, I can, I'm, I'm, I die if you poke me with a sharp stick. Like, so there's, there's a lot of things I think that we, we try and look at that we just have to understand at some point we don't know and then give them as much of a gradient in those aspects of their lives as we can and see how they utilize it. Yeah, I, I always, I like to give things choices. I mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't mean like the choice to like, you know, go and live like a fruitful life where you have a job and kids type of situation with animals. But, <laughs> um, you know, like re- reasonable choices, meaning there's, there's places to get out of the light, there's places to go, yeah. um, you know, just w- within, within reason, just, to, just so that the animal can avoid a certain stimulus that it doesn't like or go towards one that it does. I, I don't think that they have you know, inner lives where they think deep thoughts at all. But I still like to give them the benefit of the doubt where they can go to a certain spot in the aquarium or tank, whatever that they feel comfortable. But right. I, I mean, obviously you don't want to have a, a one size fits all approach, but I mean, that's kind of the direction that you went in with your, your bulb designs, right? I mean, you came up with a few different designs based on accommodating what you think would be different needs for different situations. Um, can you kind of run us through how you came up with that idea and what some of the different lighting options that you came up with are? Yeah, so we have three different bulbs that we did, and I I could I couldn't do I, the word desert and tropical are not on any of them because that drives me insane. Um, and the whole point was to try and drive people's ideas to be a little bit different. So our highest output one is our midday blaze, which features a rhino iguana. Because why would you put an iguana on something that isn't doesn't say tropical? Well, because that's not how you want to figure out your lighting. So it's all about the, the like I said, best case scenario for right now for understanding is UVI and Ferguson zones. Um, even though it's not perfect, it's the best like adaptation that we have at the moment. Um, and if you're looking at the zones, that's what you want to do. You want to find the distance from the bulb to your animal's basking spot and then figure out what zone that species needs to get into and then figure out what bulb puts that zone at that distance. And that's all it is. And then you, you go from there. Um, so the three, the, the, the midday blazes are highest output and that projects UV um, from zone four all the way down to zone one. And the end of zone one is at three feet away from the bulb. So it penetrates very, very far. Um, and then our 
jungle cover is our is meant to be something for anything that has cover above it, whether that's a box turtle going through tall grass in a field or whether that's, um, you know, tropical species in the rainforest or whatever, what have you, animals that aren't going to see as intensive light. And realistically, all it is, is that bulb, instead of projecting UV three feet, it projects UV 20 inches and the zones are, are shortened. Um, and then the last bulb is our, is our first call, which is aimed at amphibians and crepuscular species. Um, and it's it's only has zone three, two, and one, and that zone one ends at twelve inches. So it's a great bulb for um, smaller. You could use that for a snake in a ten gallon tank, or it could be used for dart frogs in uh, you know eighteen, eighteen, twenty four. But it would only be UVB up in the very top corner, and then it would project UVA a lot further down. So um, that's we kind of aim those at more crepuscular species and frogs um and then just to kind of give them that opportunity that somewhere in the tank there's a place where they can go jump into uvb and then leave it if they want that's another thing that interested me about your bulbs was they're they have a relatively small profile right i mean can you like yeah so as far as far as dart frogs goes and i mean again this is one of those things that people have different opinions on and look every everyone's you know welcome to you know keep how they like but one of the, the, the logistical problems with putting a, a UV bulb or a traditional type over any kind of dart frog enclosure is, um, you know, like you and I discussed, that like the glass is going to uh, impede the flow of some of that spectrum. And there really isn't a large area to get, you know, we're not using screen tops. Some of us have like maybe like a two inch wide section of screen strip running down the middle. But with this bulb, you can kind of find that little spot where you've got an opening or a spot between the glass and you can park that bulb up there. And especially in a dart frog vivarium where you're going to have tears, you're going to have a hardscape, bromeliads yep. at the top or whatever if you keep them a fog. I mean, they can actively go up there and find that one little spot and then leave. Like, again, like I said about having choices. So rather than just sticking a whole big long tubular bulb or even like a, um, like a coil bulb, which is still kind of, the, kind of the size of a regular incandescent, this gives you a lot more freedom in terms of you know spacing meaning you can just kind of pop that little bulb up there i mean it's it's kind of like the size of what like like a um, like a little bit it's, bigger than a silver dollar kind of or like yeah, a little bit bigger around than that and it's small enough to fit in zoomed's nano dome which is about three and a half inches tall so it's it's a tiny little bulb it's really easy to mount and um and it's, yeah like you said if you've got a chunk even a sliver of screen you can shoot that through that'll give them an area and it, that might be the spot in their in in their say habitat where the light's shining through at the one time of the day where they go up and utilize it or whatever like there's going to be spots wherever they're from where light breaks through and they're going to have access to it so why not give them access to it but this and this would do that in a tiny area they could move in and out of um and the other thing you can do realistically is if it's not a glass top and say it's just plexi cut a hole in it that's the exact same size as the the rim of the bulb and then just set it right on the hole yeah, that's, I mean, that's a simple enough mod. I mean, look, for, for all intents and purposes, the majority of us do some kind of terrarium modifications, whether we make our own or whether you're oh, modifying. Oh, are the yeah. MacGyvers of the, <laughs> of the animal community, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you have to think outside the box if you're going to make the box. Oh, 100%. So. Oh, 100%. So this is, you guys easily could get this in there. And I think, and the thing for me, like I said, it's for me, it's the UVA. I know they utilize UVB too, but... Um, Tr seeing how different species act 
that's been the coolest part about launching these bulbs is the energy efficiency. We donate um, back to uh, a lot of conservation. Actually, uh, if you buy a bulb through our website, there'll be a pop-up that'll uh, ask you which conservation organization you want to donate to. Um, one of them is Project Mitsinju in Madagascar for the uh, Mantellas. So you guys can buy a bulb and donate to Mantella Conservation. Um, but anyway, um, no, it's just it, it's it's been really cool to see the animal behavior changes. And in in UVA, I have um, uh, peacock monitors are a species of monitor that me and my wife work with very heavily. We probably have one of the largest collections in uh, in the U.S., if not the world. Um, and they're incredibly shy. And after changing, and I used Zilla bulbs and everything the whole time I was with them, um, and they did great. But they were always really shy. This bulb puts out way more UVA, the VivTech one. They're completely different animals. I, for the first time in eight years, I tong fed one and it didn't, it came up in eight and didn't take off. Um, and I can go actually look at them without them being super timid and shy. They come out a lot more. They're a lot more active. Um, their musculature is a lot better. Their skin's shedding a lot better. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just, again, increased serotonin in their brain, making them feel more natural, reducing cortisol from stress and then improves their immune system strength. So their body just naturally starts to do better. And that also might change the visual perception of prey. I mean, in, oh, in, my, in my limited, my limited, not, it's funny because before, before we started recording, I told you, I was like, I was like, ah, I was like, we're not going to talk about monitors or anything like that. And now we're talking about monitors. <laughs> but I mean, from what I understand, monitors are they're very, very active visual predator. So you have to ask yourself if they can see that end of the spectrum, like what are they seeing in a feeder now that they weren't seeing before? I mean, not, right. not to, not to anthropomorphize, but it's the only example I can think of is if you're having dinner in a really, really dark room and you can't really see what you're doing and you're going to go at it with this, the same enthusiasm, if you could see it under, you know, better lighting and the right. same thing with like with bees, bees can see light in that spectrum. So flowers look differently under UV lighting than they do under just non UV lighting. So does that have an effect somehow? You know, I mean, it's, it's all like well, little and, things that I ha always have questions about. Oh, and it a hundred percent does, uh, birds, uh, large birds, all the, um, we actually have a decent amount of people buying our bulb for birds and having an awesome effect on the birds. They're reducing their plucking, their stress is reducing their growing feathers again. It's really, really cool. And a lot of that's UVA. It's just, it's, there's so many different ways that it affects animals and it's not just like, it, it's it's not just how they see it. It's so many different pieces of it. And um, I actually talked to someone about uh, looking at UVA in birds and how they look at their food, like for a food company that's making pellets. And they, you know, some people say, oh, my bird just picks around the, the green ones. Well, did you ever look at that? I asked when I was at Zilla, uh, one of our sister companies was KT. And I asked them, I said, did you ever look at the food under a UV light? Like maybe those pretty green pellets actually look like rabbit crap. Like if it doesn't, it looks good to us, but that doesn't mean it looks good to them. And you're not even checking a spectrum that they can see to see if what you made actually looks like food or not still. And, but we forget about doing that because we can't see that. We don't think that. So it's, it's something I think whenever you're looking at any piece of husbandry in your animals enclosure, whether it's a bullfrog, dart frog, salamander, tree lizard, iguana, tortoise, whatever is really take an idea of like, okay, what, not only just what are they we are we what are we told they need, but what do they have access to? What can we do for these guys? Like I don't know, we just got to do bigger. I feel like sometimes the the more we try to think about the way they perceive things, I think the more a lot of times I think, ironically, I think we insert a lot of our own 
ideas of what they should be perceiving. Oh, exactly. You know, so it's it's so hard to. I don't think that we're ever really going to be able to understand the way that they perceive the world. It's just it's impossible because we don't we have the same raw materials, but we're not arranged in such a way that they could we can't comprehend each other. I just feel we like we can't ask them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if I mean, if someone came up to me and started. You know, if an alien came and started trying to like communicate with me telepathically, it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I feel like we can only kind of guess, but I mean, hopefully those guesses seem to be getting closer and more consistent with at least giving them the best quality of life possible in captivity. I definitely think we're on our way there, and I think technologies are going to move that way. And and I'm hoping with VivTech and I'm hoping to see a lot more small companies pop up because, and this is not a shot at the big companies, but they're never going to get us where we need to be in the, in the industry in a, in a not quick enough in my eyes. And that's because they, they focus on mostly entry-level consumers, which is great. We need someone to focus on entry-level consumer. Um, but at the same time, there has to be something past that. If you look at saltwater, look at, look at look at fish in general. If you want to get if you want to become an aquarist, you can go get a ten gallon kit to start with guppies and some, you know, other schooling fish, and then you can move up to like a fifty five gallon. You could get planted, and you can get different lighting. And there's there's a product for every step of those stages. Then you can go to saltwater, and there's entry level saltwater. You can go all the way up to a fifty thousand dollar marine tank with hundred thousand dollars lights on it. Like you can go as high as you want. But when it comes to our hobby, the same exact tanks that we're using to keep, you know, Ufaga histrionica are the same ones that some little Timmy's keeping his crested gecko in. So well, there's not a lot of options for us to really grow and, and do bigger things with the bigger ideas and husbandry concepts that we have, because a lot of the, the, those companies are focused too much on that entry level. And I'm hoping that with VivTech and some of these other pops, anybody else popping up, that we can start to take a look at how do we create that next level of product to help that next level keeper to do bigger, better things. Like instead of the, the, the biggest guy, like for the frog community, it's pretty awesome because you guys, when you're looking at like the coolest frog guys, they have the most insane tanks and big builds and beautiful frogs. When you look at a lot of the other sides of the hobby, though, it's who has the most of something and who has the prettiest or most expensive thing. And I'd rather see it be the whole hobby follow frogs a little bit more and be more about the background and the and the um, the natural history. I think frogs or the frog hobbies followed a lot more closely to the the aquatic hobby than anything else has. Um, but also kind of been able to lean on the aquatic hobby a little bit more than anything else has too. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because coming at it from a person who keeps, I mean, look, I, I keep reptiles, amphibians, I keep arachnids, but I don't apply the same mode. I mean, my, my approach to reptile keeping is markedly different than my approach to dart frog keeping, which is really more of like the, the I was joking with someone online. I said, it's really more of a fish mentality because exactly you're, you're dealing with this, like you, you can't. I mean, you could, but it would it would be bad well, news. Habitat, but like, you, you could, you can't. The habitat, you, yeah, matters. It you, it does just what it does with fish. Fish, you have to get yeah. the habitat right, or you'll fail. Yeah, like you can't take a dart frog. You can't take a dart frog out and you know put it in bed with you and, and like watch TV. You 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 can't, you can't do yeah. that. You know what I mean? The same thing. You can't do it with a fish, with a ball python, a bearded dragon, a crested gecko, whatever. You, you can do that and not kill it. I mean, I don't. I personally don't think that that's the, the best idea, but. 
you, you can't make those mistakes. But I feel like a lot of people um, in the reptile world, they, they, they look at the, the, the dart frog and the, and the fish thing and they think, well, that's the pinnacle of husbandry. And it, it's, uh, it's a pinnacle of husbandry, but really more for what, what we do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't think that a person who keeps crested geckos is a failure as a keeper because the person doesn't incorporate live plants or, or whatever, because some people just can't, they can't do that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. My, my wife has a black thumb, dude. She kills anything that's alive. That's green. <laughs> <laughs> I love her to death, but she, it's, it's literally her, one of her threats to my daughter. My daughter loves plants. She has a greenhouse in her room and, and she worked all summer to stock it and she has succulents. And my wife's threat is clean your room or I'll come in and touch things. And she freaks out. She she'll do anything if my wife says I'll come touch your plants. Yeah, plants are. Um, it, it it takes it takes skill, you know. But that's the other thing is a lot of people don't. A lot of people aren't comfortable with plants, and I, I see. I'll, I'll get I'll get your take on this. This is one of those things that I see is a lot of people. In my opinion, they equate the, the dart frog hobby with, like I said, kind of like being the end-all, be-all of husbandry. And then I see people building dart frog-friendly vivariums, but then putting species in there that really shouldn't be in that type of situation. You know what I mean? Oh, like, 100%. I, I've seen people put together ball python tanks with, with bromeliads and whatnot. It's like, well, they're not bromeliads grow, you know, hundreds of feet up in the air. They're not going to come into contact with them, but... I feel like there's people out there who use the wrong modes. Like what you said before about the Sahara desert, you know, rolling dunes of sand and, you know, no water in sight. Like people kind of apply that mode for more arid species than they should. It's it's always a broad brush stroke with everything with people like here for an arid species. Varanus kingorum. I go back to varanids because they're my passion, I know, but um, <laughs> but they're a tiny little monitor, and they live in some of the hottest parts of the desert in Australia, and it's nasty, horrible territory, and they live in these rock crevices. So everybody that keep a bunch of people that keep them, keep them, 150 degree basking spot, 10% humidity, just blasting hot. The difference, though, is is in captivity or in the wild there they also climb 50 feet back into a rock crevice where it's 72 degrees and 90 percent humidity and that's where they spend most of their time so a lot of those microclimates people don't realize and they broad brush stroke everything and they end up killing stuff and that's why the tropical desert back and forth kills me and, and even with bioactive bioactive has a bunch of broad stroke stuff in it too even though term bioactive like let's just take a step back if i'm gonna if i'm gonna build a bioactive tank I'm going to get man-made fired clay balls. Then I'm going to put nylon screen over it. Then I'm going to put sphagnum moss from New Zealand, shredded coconuts from Indonesia, and some leaf litter and some plants from all over the world. And then we're going to put in a bug from Spain and one from whoever knows where else. Like, and then call it bioactive. But then we, nobody ever thinks about, like, again, if you go back to fish tanks, uh, the bacteria load that actually has to happen in there for it to be bioactive, for it to actually be a full, you know, ecosystem, especially when you're talking about the droppings from a snake or a gecko. And people call it bioactive because it's planted and and because they put isopods in it. And that's a, another broad stroke thing. And, and unfortunately, that's again, it's a tropical. I did a tropical tank because this is a tropical animal. Well, 
Yeah, they're tropical, but tropical could mean tons of things. Just on the island continent of Madagascar alone, there's deserts, there's tropical rainforests, there's arid rainforests, there's tons, there's almost every habitat you can have. But people only really think about day geckos and even mantellas and treat them really, really tropically when some mantellas come from areas where it's bone dry desert and you have to lift rocks out of the dirt to find them hidden underneath. Yeah, when we... I'm trying to think of the the, the least... <laughs> I'm trying to get the best <laughs> way to say this, but the, the Darfrog mode, which was kind of kind of appropriated by people as this bioactive standard. I, I, I see people, like I said, using this and I mean, not to sound like a smug person, but like we, we kind of like laugh amongst ourselves because you're right. Like it's, there's nothing natural about Lika. You know what I mean? There's nothing natural yep. about window screen, but we use those not to, not to make it more naturalistic per se, but to right. make it more effective. Because what we're doing is we want to get that that rain, that moisture, whatever it is for our misting systems, out of the substrate and down. You know what I mean? Right. You, you well, I, I totally get yeah. I totally get all the pieces to it. It's just funny to me when everybody's going just pumping their fist bioactive, and then I'm like, well, what you're trying to recreate is the the dirt at the bottom of or, or like let's say that in New Caledonia, the dirt uh, the the crested geckos would be above. But you're doing that based on what somebody who's building a dart frog habitat for the forest floor of the rainforest is. And you're basing it on a habitat that they've built that looks gorgeous, but has a, a bio load of 10 frogs that poop something the size of a pinhead a couple times a day at best. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly it. That's it. That, yeah. Or even like people who obsess about substrate with certain species that by and large, aren't going to come into contact with the ground. Like I've had discussions with people about tree frog species and species of tree frog, they're, they're, that are up in the canopy or they're, they're, you know, in the understory, wherever they are, they're not crawling around in their own excrement the way dart frogs are or species that are, that are more terrestrial because dart frogs are crawling around in leaf litter. They're running across, you know, bird poop and, and, dead things, rotten fruit, insects, fungus, bacteria, all that. 100%. Yeah, whereas higher higher up in the canopy, you know, if a tree frog makes a mess on its branch, all it does is just walk away. The rain will wash the branch off later during during the day when it, when you have rains or whatever, and then it's 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 clean. You know what I mean? It was dark frogs are terrestrial. They're constantly in their own, you know, junk, so to speak. So you need oh, yeah. to have you need to have something that's going to keep that from from fouling. But it doesn't. Well, and even just understanding that, like people get into tree frogs and they build what they call a natural, natural bioactive environment, trying to breed or trying to breed them or something. And like I look to Mike Novi, who breeds the crap out of every tree frog, but he also has a glass tank with a water bowl in it and a paper towel on the bottom, and he changes it every day in hundreds of enclosures. Like just thinking about that makes me cry inside. But so I could never do it, but I get why because those animals don't live in a habitat where they come in contact with a lot of bacteria load. So when they do, it can crash them really hard. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, Mike's a great friend of mine. I have him on the show all the time. And we had actually talked about that where he, I mean, Mike's whole world is these frogs. And he keeps everything immaculately, immaculately clean just for that reason. Because you can't have these animals laying around in, in dirt and leaf litter because that's not where they're from. And... You know, a while back, he there was a, a video on YouTube. I actually I had Mike on the show, and we, we discussed it kind of, you know, in detail. But, 
um, you know, people were criticizing Mike for the way he had his enclosure set up. I'm like, well, that's not really fair because first of all, this is the man's whole life. He's been doing this for, for years and he's doing this so that the animals have as close to what they would experience in nature rather than, you know, sitting around in cocoa fiber, which they're, they're not going to do. Exactly. So I feel like there's a, um, you know, there, there's a, a bias among a lot of people to think that, you know, a, a, a planted background with, you know, with margravia and, um, and bromeliads and a big layer of leaf litter automatically equals good husbandry. And for many species, it, it just, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, especially tree frogs, they have to be kept, they have to be kept really, really clean and you can't rely on, you cannot rely on a cleanup crew to do that. The same, the same thing, like, I mean, I, I, I was having a conversation with someone a while back about my blood pythons and I don't know if you've ever worked with them, but you know, they're, they're a pretty unique snake. They're, they really don't, oh, yeah. they don't do much. They're like the quintessential ambush predator, but I'm not going to keep them on what people would consider a, a bioactive substrate because when they urinate, they're going to destroy oh, God, it. Exactly. And when exactly. they, and when they pass stool like once a year, I'm sorry, but there's no army of isopods and spring cows that's going to be able to make a dent in that. <laughs> I mean, I'll have to, I don't know if you've ever kept them, but it's like, you have to leave the house for a day. Oh, yeah. That That's how oh, bad yeah. it is. So get the, get the horse trouble. Yeah. Out. But, but people don't seem to, the people who, who do understand that are the people who have the most experience. I feel like what you were talking about before about like, kind of like gateway species, like the gateway setups and the kits and whatnot. I feel like a lot of places push that because it takes all the, it takes all the hard work out of it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like if you really want to be competent in your husbandry skills, you really have to work at it. Well, you know? the other part of it too, is like, it, it it's, it's, it's the, this conundrum in our thinking and in, in the manufacturers thinking of they, they're not wrong. Like a com the complete bearded dragon kit on the shelf isn't wrong. It really does have everything your bearded dragon needs. However, what it doesn't have is all of the learning and crap that we had to do to understand why it needs those things and what unique pieces we need to know about each one of those things. Like the fact that the reptile industry is the only industry I know of that makes the only product I know of that the UV bulb that can work the same way it does the day you turn it on as it does a year from now, but kill your animal because it, it the type of wavelength that degrades, we can't see. That's insane. Like, you made, they made a product that doesn't come with an alarm or anything. It just slowly degrades to, and, and you can't see it or tell. And you're supposed to know to replace it. But like they don't know to replace it because they haven't been in the industry. They haven't had to do that. They haven't had to learn. They haven't gone through. And then when it comes to getting people to try and learn, I used to get really, really just pissed. I used to just get frustrated at, oh, why didn't you learn about your animal? Why are you doing it? Why don't people do their research? Until one day it clicked. If my wife comes up to me and she says, I, Ryan, go get dog food. Okay. Well, and she'll tell me it can't be beef and it's got to be this one of these proteins and needs these other three boxes checked. And I go to the store and I go to say Petco or whatever box store or whatever local store. And I look at down the aisle and I find see ABC brands that complete those. And I look up on Amazon, each one real quick and see, make sure it hasn't killed a dog or anything like that or recalls. And look at the reviews and I pick, let's say B, because it's middle price and they all seem good enough. And I go home and I feed that to my dog. And if they don't have any weird issues or anything, then I assume it's good enough. I don't become an animal nutritionist 
the months leading up to getting dog food, I assume that there's a company, the company is at this store because they're a good brand there. They wouldn't be out there or they wouldn't be on the shelf that the company has their own researchers and that they've done that. And we kind of, that's the American buying experience for anything. Now, when you go to the reptile section or amphibians or whatever the was called the reptile section for of, of a pet or something like that, or a pet smart or whatever. When you walk down the aisle, it's the same experience. Everything says complete this, complete that. It's all the same manufacturers making all of these components. It's pretty, if you buy a kit, it seems pretty self-explanatory. And there's nothing there that sparks you to say, you don't quite know enough. You're, you should learn more before you do this. The whole entire experience is you've got everything you need. It says complete kit. It says everything you need on it. It's giving you this experience. And then they go home and they fail. And that kills me inside that that's and that's where the experience and i think that differentiation comes in is it's not that that without the experience you don't understand why those components work or don't work and that's it and you can't we also can't expect people to learn that as they get into it so we've got to find a way to more effectively help entry-level people get in and be successful instead of giving them complete kit and all of this crap. And that's kind of where VivTech went with, like, at least with the bulbs. The bulb is LED. It gives out UV. If it's on, it's still giving out UV. It doesn't degrade enough to need to be replaced. So as long as it's on, it works. If it doesn't work, it won't turn on. Just like a thing you would expect in your house to want to replace because it stopped working. That's Yeah, that's interesting. Your, your bulbs have a, a long life expectancy too, right? Because I know with the, most of the manufacturers that are out there now, they recommend you change the bulb every six months, but you really can't tell if the bulb degraded, you know, a day later, six months later, a year later, unless you have special equipment that you can measure it with and really understand what you're looking at. So how are your bulbs different? Yours, you say they, they, they don't work after they become ineffective. I mean, so, what's the life so expectancy on them? There is, there is no, uh, unlike the other types that can still work and not put out UV, the diodes that put out UV, they're all in a row. So if the lights are working, if any of the lights go out or stop working, the whole entire thing stops working. Um, and the lifespan on them is about four and a half years if you run them 12 hours a day. So they also have a two-year warranty. How did you manage to, I know that the LED has been kind of like a, an elusive technology. How were you able to develop that as opposed to like some of the other things like fluorescent? Like why not make another fluorescent? Why go with LED? Well, realistically, the fluorescence, everybody's already made all of that. And I, I even when I was at Zilla, I hated making anything that everybody, anybody else already had. Because to me, just what's the point? We're never moving the industry forward if we're all just copying each other. And that was one thing that killed me about the major brands. And if you watch them, like, Zoomed launches a skyscraper, so Exoterra makes one. And then when I was at Zilla, I made a 20 long sized front opener, so Zoomed made one. Like, and it was no different, and nobody's doing anything different. It's just all copying each other. And I didn't want to come out with something that you could get somewhere else. And fluorescent to, is, is at where it's at, is realistically going to be as good as it's going to be. It might get a little bit better, but there's not many places for it to go. And fluorescent has that problem of it still. It doesn't work, but to us, it's on. It, it gives off light. It doesn't give you that moment where you go, I have to fix this. So there's no, mo- there's no mode to action, and that frustrated me, and that was something I wanted to fix. I want to create products that, are, that cause the people to be successful without having to know the things we were talking about earlier, like how, yes, you can use dry sand for bearded dragons, 
as long as they're healthy, they won't get impacted. Like making sure that they're not dehydrated, giving them enough water and food and diet and stuff like that. Like I want them, I want to create things that put that knowledge into it so that it's one less thing that person has to learn in order to be effective and or, or be successful in keeping those animals. I, I want to stop putting so much of the pressure on that first time keeper. I can't even remember those days. It's been so long. Like, <laughs> right. I just, I, I think about people today who are getting started and the resources that they have available and how there's so much information out there. And many of it is, is also conflicting how it's probably difficult. I mean, maybe I'm just, I'm spoiled. Like I come from a different time. I come from a different mindset. I grew up during the, the wild West when you could pretty much get anything and, there was not that much in the way of understanding in terms of how to keep everything. And now you have so much information out there. And I mean, look, I remember when ball pythons were horrible, like they, they wouldn't eat or they'd only eat like gerbils. gerbils. And they, they had, <laughs> yep. they were, they were one of the hardest, like the hardest species to care for. And now they're like, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And you have to think about it. Like, well, we have more resources available. We have more, access with, with the internet, you can get access to academic papers and things like that. But I mean, how much information out there is just, is conflicting or is contrary to what's really needed? Like you made a good analogy before about the, the bulbs that are manufactured, um, to what I like to, what did you say to last and last, but the, the UV exposure that they put out is actually toxic. So like it's it just, like, it ends. so like, yeah, like I, we, we created, we created a bulb that still turns on like any other bulb, except the thing you bought it for doesn't exist anymore. And there's no way for you to tell. Yeah. Like, that's insane. Yeah. But you still have to have your UV, you know what I mean? So it's like yeah, one of those exactly. things where people don't, I could see it being difficult for a person coming out and thinking, well, the store told me I need X, Y, Z and people on the forums say I need X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, you do need X, Y, and Z, but you don't need to overdo it or underdo it or maybe understand why it works or how it works. But well, there's I, so I much know. pressure. And there's so much pressure out there too for these entry level people to nail it right away. If you go on a go, oh my God, go on a Facebook group and tell someone you put your bearded dragon on sand, and they will burn your house down. Like it's crazy, and they don't even understand why. They just know that somebody said it's bad, so it's bad. And there's, it's just. It's, I feel bad. I honestly feel bad for people. Like, at least for me, like, dude, we just went, I went and got books. Every time I moved, I moved a lot as a kid. Every new school, I rented every reptile book, every encyclopedia, you know, I was reading about stuff. Like, and I tell people even now, I'm like, go back to books. I know that sounds stupid, but just go back to books because most publishers, you can make a website and not have to know anything or be anybody or ever even kept these animals. And I can make a website that says whatever I want. But if I go to a publisher and say, hey, I want you to put a bunch of money into writing this book, they're going to ask me for credentials. Like, so at least with some of the books, now granted, some of the stuff is outdated, but there's a lot of good information in there. And then for everybody else, I just, I'm kind of trying to tell people, just think outside the box, start critically thinking about husbandry. Like, okay, bearded drag again, bearded dragons, again, they're the quintessential one for all the problems that, like, Australians laugh at us, how we keep them. But like, that you can't keep them on sand or they die. Okay. I understand that you're afraid of impaction, but if they can't live on loose soil or sticks or dirt and, or they die, how are they not extinct? Cause the, I don't, I haven't gotten the chance to go to Australia yet, but I know a lot of people who have, and they didn't see a lot of tile fields and fields of tile. <laughs> so like, 
but so you have to start thinking, okay, well, why is that the case that everybody says that? Well, it's because it is possible for them to get impaction, but impaction is a secondary condition to something else. And usually it's dehydration or hypocalcemia. And both of those things cause, cause cramping in their digestive tract, which causes usually insect exoskeletons to become impacted. Um, but where everyone is so afraid of impaction now that they're putting their bearded dragon on paper towel or glass or just the glass or tile. Well, okay, what is that going to do? How is that? Look at there's studies about cats that live in homes on tile and developing arthritis. I do show, trade shows around the country. I stand on concrete for 10 hours a day. Dude, my back is wrecked after two days. How about standing on concrete every day for your entire life when you're an animal that lives in soft substrate and burrows? Like, we, we don't think about that. We just kind of try and one, I don't know, we just need to think critically about stuff. Like, if, if we start to critically analyze things a little bit more of how does this husbandry topic actually relate to how this animal lives its life, we might we can find a happy medium for most stuff. And most of the time, it's really just give it a gradient of everything. <laughs> if you think it needs no substrate, give it some on one side and some on the other, and none on the other. If you need it, think it needs humidity, give it some here and none there. You know, like give it options to give these animals the options to do the things they need to do and they'll show us what they need. You know, it's, it's interesting because in the dart frog universe, we all kind of I mean, I, I, I don't know how the rest of the world perceives it, but I mean, we're not the, the biggest niche in the world, but we, we're kind of consistent. There, there's some pretty generally accepted. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just uh, like, like there, there's there's generally accepted practices that we all kind of stay yeah. with because it's generally agreed with like the, it works. There'll be different variations, but the 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 few basic principles, the basic you know, the ten commandments of keeping them is pretty much the same. But I see people with other species like I mean, like first off, like when I was a kid, I've said this a million times. I'll say it again. When I was a kid, I saw a picture of a bearded dragon in an encyclopedia in my grandparents' den. And it was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. I thought to myself, I'm never going to see one of these animals in my lifetime ever. And now I have one. And they're everywhere. Oh, there's, there's, there's millions of them. And there's such a, the, the gambit is so varied in terms of how people keep them in the, like the way people argue about it. And I think to myself, like, there's a lot of people out there who have these ideas that because they heard something from a source that has some sort of authority, regardless of who it is, that that, is automatically the way it has to be. And they seem to take pleasure in talking down to other people and saying, like, your animal's going to die, or I, I hope your animal dies. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Why would you hope the other person's animals, why would you want the other person's animal to die just to teach that person a lesson? Like, like what kind of person are you? You know what I mean? It's That's the, yeah. stuff, that's the stuff that kind of makes me want to stay away from, like, the, the whole reptile world. I mean, the dark frog world and tree frog world has drama, but... It's not, or at least in my experience, it's not the the extent that it is with, um, you know, with with a lot of the more commonly kept reptiles like leopard geckos and whatnot. I mean, yeah, you you see it somewhat with white's tree frogs a little bit, but not, you know. I think you see I think you see less of it just because again, when you get to that, dart frog keepers aren't entry level. Like you can't you you can to an extent, but you you don't just decide to keep things and then jump into dart frogs right away. Not successfully. So you, that community is a lot of more senior people and and more scientifically minded enthusiasts as well. 
versus when you get to, I think, dart frog. So when we talk about like how cool it is to have these animals in captivity and how it gives us that access to the outside world and to you know, environments from around the world. And I used to tell, I tell people that all the time, how cool it is to keep animals like that, reptiles and amphibians. And, but with reptiles, you don't see that as much. But with dart frogs, you are so, you have to be so intensely tied to their environment and their parameters and their science and the husbandry and all those pieces in order to be successful that I think it kind of keeps a lot of the drama and stuff out of it because a lot of that stuff you see it more more in the entry level intermediate level when it's more about who has the biggest or the most or the whatever when in dart frogs it's a lot more about who has the coolest enclosure the most accurate you know husbandry the the the, you know the the hatch the, the hardest dart frog to get a hold of or see that new species like those are the kind of things that that elevate people in this hot in this side of the hobby versus instead of having the most expensive albino whatever it is yeah that's a good point i I can see it like that you know i mean people like with with like the the i know the morph thing is big with reptiles especially snakes but like someone wants to spend x amount of dollars you know ten twenty thousand dollars on a new morph for whatever reason I mean, there's there's five, six, seven thousand dollar dart frog pairs, but I got news for you: you're doing everything to make sure that they're gonna live because oh yeah, they can't thrive on neglect the way say a ball python or a Burmese python or many other corns, whatever. Many of these species of snake that can live and breed without much, you know, without much else than like a you know a box and some heat and a and a, you know some some newspaper. Yeah. Well, and I, I knew a ball python breeder, very well-known ball python breeder, really cool guy, and somebody I, I grew up knowing um, well earlier in the industry with herps. He actually helped me start the Herp Society. Um, but he, at one point, got into dart frogs, too, because it was something he'd always loved, and a mutual friend of ours got him really excited about all the types he had and stuff, and just really sparked that interest for him. And he dumped a ton of money into it. And, um, and, and unfortunately, it's, and I feel really bad, but he he completely it, the whole thing crashed on him and, and it went really really badly for him um and a part of that was i don't think he just really he he liked the idea of it but it you can't run that even one room of dart frogs is more work than an entire facility of snakes so and and just keeping up on you know just even just making fruit fly cups for your collection is an enormous amount of work when you get that big so and i think that was something that people like that just aren't ready for it, it's a whole different aspect of how you keep and how everything happens i mean it definitely takes a lot of discipline i think that that's why a lot of people i think a lot of people are intimidated by it and they can't quite put a finger on why they say oh it's hard it's this it's, it's not that it's hard per se it's just that you know, you, you you have to make sure that you have cultures. You have to make sure that you have a readily supply of feeders. I mean, if my snakes, if I can't get feeders, you know, rats or mice or whatever, I mean, realistically, they can go for a couple of weeks to even a couple of months. Whereas the dark frogs can't do that. You know, if my if my air conditioning for the house breaks, you know, there, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm going to lose all my dark frogs. So you have to kind of be on top of it. I mean, you can leave them alone for a couple of days. Like, you know, there have been times where I was, I was you know, sick. I wasn't feeling well. I mean, I still like crawled down there to make sure that they were okay anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I could see where that being a thing. I mean, I'm sorry that your friend didn't have success with it, but it's just, it's, it, it's a different mindset. It is, you know, it, it is more like fish, you know what I mean? Like if your filter yep. takes, a, your filter takes a dump, your fish are going to, you know, your fish might die. It's the same thing. Like if your vivarium goes, then 
then there goes your frogs. But yeah, no, and it, 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 well, it was kind of, honestly, it was like, I kind of, I was excited to see him excited, but I didn't have a lot of hopes because I just, I knew how big of a change that is. Um, but, and that's, but yeah, that's, I think that's why the, the, the frog community kind of doesn't hit that mainstream all the time because it's not something you can do that with. You can't, you can't, it's kind of like a really nice Marine tank. You can't just jump in and out of it really easy. You really have to put time and work into it to get it to a point where it's, it's, it is what you wanted it to be. And then by the time you've gotten it there, it's, you're, you're so involved in it. You don't, it's not something you're, you're jumping in and out of. Yeah, it's almost like it's its own living thing. You know, yeah. I, I tell people about the dart frogs anyway. I say, look, it's more like being a gardener. You know what I mean? You, you, you invest time and effort. You set this, this, this little system up and it's going to grow and it's going to change. Like there are certain, my vivariums look different year to year. You know what I mean? Different plants will, will take off. Some plants will die off. I'll, I'll take a cutting I'll move it here, there, and it's just, it's just, it's not static the way it would be with, I guess, another type of enclosure, say, like, um, I'm sick of talking about bearded dragons. Let's just say green iguana. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say green iguana enclosure that might be more static, uh, corn snake, whatever. This changes. Oh, it's everything in there is growing and changing constantly. But I see people... They'll say like, oh, you know, I have my new, my bioactive setup and I look and they stuck a couple of plants into some cocoa fiber. And I think to myself, like, if you, if <laughs> yep. you, if you really let this thing go, I mean, if you do it right, eventually it's going to be a big box full of plants. You know what I mean? You have to trim it. You have to cultivate it. It's not just this closed system. I mean, I do, I do a fair amount of pruning and adding leaf litter and changing leaf litter because they're not all the frogs crap is going to get eaten by like magical isopods i, <laughs> oh, I just yeah. I, I see people they they do it and it's like if you're doing it right you're going to be working on it constantly you know what i mean you can't just plant tomatoes in the backyard and never water them never you know pick the tomato you can't do that you know same thing with the dark frog hobby these vivariums that you, you have to do some regular maintenance but that's the fun in it that's for me that's the most rewarding part right no 100 well and then the other kind of cool part is it is even with the clippings got the plant hobby side of the dart frog hobby is another whole beast unto itself oh yeah that's that's a that's a very very deep rabbit hole with lots of side tunnels i um i mean look i'm i'm i i guess i consider myself an intermediate plant person i don't have the same affection for plants the way some of my other friends and some of the listeners have i mean there are some people i know that like their vivariums look like the garden of eden they're just it, amazing but you know you still have to have some information on the type of plants you're keeping and whatnot but even plant people are actually jealous of darfrog people because i've heard people who's it talking to um i was talking to brandon of lost vivariums and we were talking about uh just different plants and whatnot and he's he started out as a plant person now he keeps darfrogs and brandon was telling me that um you know people were asking him like how do you keep these plants so much better than we do and he's like well they're in a vivarium they're kind of just got everything that they need in there as opposed to just letting the plant grow you know in your living room or whatever and not having it succeed so yeah the plant angle of it is a whole other it's it's there's so there's way more to the plant game than than i'll ever know <laughs> for sure yeah. and i yeah no i definitely love some of them but i like i, I have a couple 
you know, fun trim clippings here and there, but that's about it. I don't have the time to have the dart frog tanks and, and plants and living rainforest living room that I'd love to have. Yeah. It's, it, it takes work. It takes work. I mean, I got a lot of, I got a lot of tanks, but I've only got a few really good display tanks and, um, you know, it's, it is what it is what it is. You know, you can't, you, you can't just leave it. Like I can't, like I can't just get up and go on vacation for a month and just leave like a bowl of water in there. You know what I mean? I just, I, <laughs> right. I can't, I can't do that. I mean, I have no life anyway, which is, you know, why I host this podcast, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, I mean, I'm sure other people have people that come in, look after it, take care of it, but I was never really, I was never really comfortable with that. You know, plus I, I wouldn't want to have to task anyone with coming in and having to explain how to do all the, the feeding and the culturing and whatnot. I just don't feel like it'd be, well, I guess it's kind of like what you said. It's kind of beyond the average person's ability to grasp from the very beginning without a lot of, uh, lot, lot of, uh, time spent looking into how to do it. Well, right. For you, even for like, for me, I've got to have like a little trainee or mentee that I'm working with that comes over and learns before I can, I've got to have someone that knows the collection before I can leave. Yeah. I mean, my wife and kids know how to do it. It's, it's not their thing. They don't really, you know, I mean, could, could my youngest daughter make up a fruit fly culture and seed it? Yeah, she can. Um, they don't, you know, doesn't doesn't particularly want to, but they un- <laughs> they understand how it goes. But again, I you know it's one of those things where it's not like hey you know, you know go dump um you know like make up some crested gecko food and dump that in there like that's that's easy. Yeah. But you know wrangling wrangling fruit flies isn't easy unless you've kind of developed a a skill for de- to deal oh, with exactly. it. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and you uh, gotta first have time she, first time they try and they drop the fruit fly cup and then. Yeah, then you could then you'd hear about that. Yeah, nah, we all do it sometimes. <laughs> I've I've done it myself too. Actually, I did it. The, I did it the other day. And the Heidi, I <laughs> the Heidi, I don't just disappear the way the melanogasters, the little ones, they'll just kind of disappear and you'll never see again. No, oh, the right. the, no, the, Heidi, the Heidi eyes you find like in the bathroom, like hanging around by the sink and in your in your towels in the laundry room. That's that's not a fun conversation to have when you lose a whole bunch oh, yeah. of Heidi. Eye. But nope, I've definitely dropped the cup and done the tap dance around the room as fast as I can, squishing everything I can before it gets on stuff and I get yelled at. Yeah. Well, it's better than yep. losing doobie roaches, but <laughs> 100 percent. So, Ryan, we're at the end of it. I just wanted to ask you real quick, um, where do you think the future of UV lighting is gonna go? Where do you where do you think it'll be in the next five or ten years? You know, I don't I, I know where I want to see it go and I want to see us continuously aiming towards creating something that is controllable to the extent of being able to create true sun cycles. I want to be able to create a fixture that I can give you to set on a tank that you could punch in what your animal is and it would create the sunrise, sunset, UVA, UVB throughout the day, color spectrums, light intensities from wherever that animal is. I think that's where we need to get to someday is one fixture that could just do everything. And I don't think that that's too far off. And that would be interesting to see. That was something that I was thinking about was like my, my lighter, my lights are all on timers pretty much for everything is like 12 on 12 off. Cause everything I have kind of comes from near the equator. But then I started thinking like, if I'm going to put a UV bulb on and it's got a relatively high intensity, should I really have that on for 12 hours at a time? You know what I mean? Like shouldn't, isn't, wouldn't it be better if it, came on a little soft, maybe ran at like full intensity for maybe two, three hours and then kind of backed off and went down again. But 
I mean, if that's something that's going to be in the future, I, I see that being a lot more conducive to proper husbandry than just kind of blasting an animal with UV for 12 hours straight. Well, right. And that's actually the, the VivTech bulbs, the LEDs right now actually are already dimmable. So if you have them on a, like a herb stat, you can turn them on the lighting setting. And I, I can, I have one of my, uh, a tagu enclosure. It turns on at 7am at 0% and then ramps up to hundred percent at 11 o'clock and goes hundred percent from 11 to four. And then from four to 8pm, it uh, dims down to zero. Really? And how, so, does, how does a tagu react to that? It completely changes his behaviors because you think about, so some of these raises in UVA outputs, that slow raise in UVA output actually is a trigger for wake up for a lot of animals. That's part of the circadian rhythm. Um, so, and, and with animals, even I'm trying to get some more circuits to be able to do that. Um, cause I really want to get them on a lot of the crepuscular animals, the more like the geckos and things like that. Cause right now, realistically, we give them new, like by the flick of a switch, we give them Two o'clock in the afternoon, midnight. Two o'clock in the afternoon, midnight. Like, think about these animals that are crepuscular that we're not even giving them the time of day they exist in. What would that look like when we give them that four hours at the beginning and four hours at the end or two hours on each end of daytime where they actually like to exist, where their hormonal and, and lighting triggers are causing them to want to be more active? Yeah. That's what I'm excited to see. Well, it's like, just to give you a parallel with our frogs, that misting schedules kind of if, if you missed your frogs well i don't want to say right way or wrong way but if you're missing your frogs a certain way you're going to get the area soaked the frogs are all going to come out they're going to go crazy be active and then as that water evaporates makes its way down through the drainage layer and kind of dissipates the air will be humid but not as saturated and then they'll kind of hide and kind of like disappear like that's how i know if my misting my misting schedule is off if I'm not seeing my, if I'm seeing my frogs too much or not enough, because it replicates that natural cycle of getting a deluge in the evening or early whenever, and then having it dry out again. And like, I'll actually like, if it's like a nice, nice day and I can get the windows open, I'll open their ventilation up on their tanks a little bit more, open the window and get some airflow, really let it like kind of not dry out, but like let some of that water evaporate. And then really, oh, yeah. really load them up with a heavy misting that night and then restrict the ventilation again because like the UV cycle, there's a natural cycle of, of rain and then evaporation, all that, you know? So it seems like with lighting, if we could do it with misting, we should definitely be able to do it with lighting. Oh, 100%. And I think the more that we continue to change, like right now, the, like the, the, the VivTech bulbs, the whole thing dims. So the UVA, UVB, and the visible light all dim on the same circuit. Um, so, but I'd love to, I, I just, I'm constantly chewing on what the future would look like if being it, like if we can dim and modulate those and an RGB circuit where we can change the color of the light output and do all of that, we might be able to, you know, through different circuitry and through different, you know, um, programming, we could seriously recreate everything other than the infrared spectrum um, for the ultraviolet and, and uh, visible light spectrums for animals. Like that would, that would change completely how they utilize their habitat. That would be interesting to see. Well, listen, Ryan, I, I want to thank you so much. It's This has been a great show. I, I, I love having open-ended conversations, and you, you've definitely given me a lot to think about. If anybody <laughs> wanted to find you and purchase some VivTech products or find out, I mean, I know you've got, you've got VivTech, you've got your old podcasts out there, and you've got other interviews and some other podcasts, but can you give just give us a quick rundown if anybody wants to learn more about what you're working on? 
Yeah, for sure. You can definitely check out the website at vivtechproducts.com. Um, follow us on Instagram and Facebook um, and hopefully more social media coming. Um, and then, yeah, check out the uh, Reptile Room Confessions podcast. And then hopefully within the next couple months, as I get some of this stuff organized, VivTech's going to come out with a podcast as well as some YouTube uh, uh, content, really attacking a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Like we talk about looking how an we see their world versus how animals see the world and really attacking some of those differentiations and getting us out of our heads a little bit. So that's kind of what the whole intention of that's going to be. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Very cool. I look forward to it. All right, everyone. I want to thank Ryan again so much for being on the show. This was very enlightening. I've, uh, you know, again, I, I like to be open to different things and learning about UV and the different technology. And whether you, whether you choose to incorporate it or not, I still think it makes for some really fascinating discussions. So, hey, look, I hope you guys picked something up. I know I did. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, stay tuned. We've got episode 100 coming up real soon. So other than that, uh, keep listening. You guys are great. Catch up with you again soon.